Okay, we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a great guest. We have Andres Portiera, who is a graduate student at the uh, at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and we are going to talk about um, the the history of relationships between uh, the U.S. and Cuba. So, welcome, Andres. Uh, so, first of all, how you became interested in, in history and decided to become a historian and, and particularly study this particular topic? Um, so, I, I, I honestly love history. I think it's one of the That's that's interesting to hear. I, I mean, yeah, it, it's it's true. Cuba, it, it's always in, in the in the headlines. Even here that I, I live in Peru, uh, I, 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 a lot of times hear of Cuba, and and it's 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 really interesting. I think we we could start by by by, by talking. How does the the, the, the Cuban and American relationships start? How that how does all Came because I think it, it has been a long run and it's been very complicated and and I feel many people don't have a, a, a much broad idea beyond that there is a, a large Cuban American community in in Miami and Florida but beyond that probably they know very little. Yeah. So so like uh, Cuba U.S. relations in general or the Cuban Americans specifically or both? No, Cuba U.S. relationships. colonies in the Americas. 
and they tried to ensure that there was maybe some, with the Bourbon reforms in the 18th century, some intercolonial uh, trade was permitted between Peru and, and New Spain, and between New Spain and Cuba and all the other stuff, but really they tried to make sure that foreigners, the French, the English, couldn't trade with their colonies. But despite that, contraband was very common, and uh, so you had merchants from like New England coming down south to Cuba and having contraband trade with Cuba. And uh, John Adams in uh, the late 18th century would write, I know not why uh, we should be ashamed to admit that sugar was a key ingredient in our revolution. And he's talking about how, for example, the British government with the Navigation Acts tried to restrict trade between uh, the continental U.S. and, or what became the continental U.S. and uh, foreign colonies because they, the contraband trade was just so big that British were trying to restrict trade, for example, on molasses, on sugar, and other uh, tropical uh, products. Um, once Cuba, uh, once the U.S. becomes independent, uh, there's a lot of there's a drive to try and uh, annex Cuba because they it's it's very fertile land. It's in the tropics. It's producing a lot of cane sugar. Sugar at the time is a luxury good. Uh, there's a lot of money there. Uh, there's a lot of enslaved people too, so you can expand the plantation system. The U.S. South is could annex it and it could just easily fold into the already growing plantation system. Um, but uh, the U.S. was too afraid uh, that if there was one, if there was a revolution in Cuba, you would get a re repeat of Haiti. They were freaked out about Haiti. They thought that a revolution in Cuba would mean all the slaves would revolt, and you would have a second Haitian republic. And from a, a, a black revolutionary anti-slavery Cuba, the revolution would come to the U.S. and the slaves might be freed in the U.S. So that's one fear. And the other fear is if there was a revolution in Cuba a foreign power like the British might militarily intervene and take over. And if and I'm, I'm, if your if your listeners look at a map, Cuba has the old controls the only two exits to the Gulf of Mexico, the Strait of Yucatan and the Strait of Florida. A, a the Mississippi River is the main route by which most of the 19th century west products came from inland to the sea into the Atlantic economy. If the British had taken over Cuba, they would have been able to basically economically block trade between the West and the rest of the Atlantic economy, which would have caused like plantations in like New Orleans and the rest to collapse. So that's what they were paranoid about. So John Quincy Adams in the 1820s decides, okay, we're not strong enough. Everyone else is getting independent, but we're not going to like help Cuba become independent or support that in any way because we want Cuba to remain Spanish for the time being until by either natural laws of political gravity, as he put it, or some other circumstances allow us to buy Cuba. Um, now, uh, there was also another thing. The U.S. actually opposed Colombian and Mexican plans to invade Cuba and make it independent uh, in the 1820s at the um, Congress of Panama. They let the, the Colombians and Mexicans know that if that was attempted, that would be blocked. Um, and the British also expressed their distaste. Anyway, uh, so basically that's Cuba's status more or less. The U.S. kind of played around, tried to buy it a couple of times. But eventually, uh, civil war happens, and then the calculus completely changes because Cuba still has slavery, but the U.S. doesn't. And so that makes annexation of Cuba really problematic for most of the rest of the 19th century. 
And then uh, when the Spanish-American War happens, uh, by that time slavery's already ended in Cuba, when the Spanish-American War happens, uh, Cuba um, is freed from Spain but turned into a U.S. protectorate. Uh, basically, uh, Puerto Rico's outright annexed. It becomes a colony. It's still a colony today. Uh, but uh, Cuba, the, the, there was a, an amendment passed before the Spanish-American War. Um, that well, right before the Spanish-American War kicks off, this the Teller Amendment, which basically says the U.S. forswears annexing Cuba. And it's very likely that um, Teller, who was a, I believe he, he was a congressman from Colorado, they had sugar beets. They had a sugar beet industry. It's very likely that he wanted to avoid annexing Cuba because that would make it part of the U.S.'s internal market, and that would be competition for Colorado beet sugar. Um, anyway, so the U.S. basically forswears annexing Cuba, but uh, they make the ending of the U.S. military occupation in Cuba conditional on the U.S. and uh, Cuba incorporating to its constitution something called the Platt Amendment, which among other things allowed the U.S. to intervene militarily in Cuba however many times it wanted, for whenever it wanted, on basically any pretext. I, th I think that like the, the pretext is written out, but basically the, it was very vague so the U.S. could interpret it however it wanted. And the, Cuba becomes a protectorate, uh, legally speaking, until like the 1930s, and then in the 1930s revolution, uh, that part of the constitution is thrown out. But Cuba's kind of kept within the U.S. sphere of influence. Uh, Batista controls Cuba more or less from the throughout the most of the 1930s and into the 1940s. Batista leaves politics in 1944, but Cuba's really like economically part of the U.S. economy at this point. It, it depends on the U.S. as their major market for sugar, which is still really important. <laughs> and for the booming tourism in the 1940s and 50s, and then the Cuban Revolution happens, and uh, Batista's thrown out, he'd become the dictator in the 1950s, Batista's thrown out. Uh, economic ties between the U.S. and Cuba are cut as Cuba embraces the USSR, uh, and then you have this explosion of Cuban immigration to the U.S. in the 1960s, mostly, uh, mostly white, mostly professionals, uh, mostly from um, like or professionals who are part of the country's historical elites, the country's oligarchs, uh, but also a lot of working class professionals, and especially wealthier and whiter, and they go to the U.S. and really start building, like the, Cuba had already been present, Cuba's already been present in the U.S., but they really start expanding in Florida and New Jersey in the 60s and the 70s, um, and then you get the, the Cold War. Um, I mean, I, I can keep going, but that more or less brings us to the 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 the, the issue since the since 1959, which has been Cuba has been outside of the U.S.'s sphere of influence and separated from the U.S. economy, while while uh, while the U.S. has been trying to basically bring it back into the fold and reassert control since more or less 1959. Yeah, that's that's being a pretty interesting summary. I, I think that we could talk more about the more more recent history of the U.S. Cuban relationships. I mean, uh, the the first thing I, I remember about hearing about Cuba was when the um, the Marielle boats in the nineties. I think uh, the Marielle boat lift was nineteen eighty. Or 80s? Uh, yeah, or the, yeah. so the, there's, there's two crises. 
Yeah. So, so what? Yeah. The... yeah so, so basically, there's I, I confused them at, at one point too. Uh, yeah. There's the Maria boat lift, and then there's the uh, Balcero crisis. Okay. Um, uh, is a port to the west of Havana. Um, in 1980, there was actually this actually has to do with Peru, <laughs> if I recall correctly. I yeah. It was the Peruvian embassy that started this. Uh, so basically, um, a couple of Cubans forced their way into the Peruvian embassy in 1980, and uh, the, the in the process, I believe they end up killing one of the guards, one of the like the embassy guards that uh, works for the Cuban government. Anyway. They break into the Cuban embassy. Cuban government demands Peru turn them over. Uh, the Peruvian government says no because they've been requesting asylum. And so Fidel, in, in, in response, says, okay, well, if you won't hand them over, we're going to lift all barriers and all security guards from the Peruvian embassy, and we won't stop whoever decides to walk in there. This backfires <laughs> because then you get thousands and thousands of people flooding into the Peruvian embassy. And, uh, and, and like, basically, you could not take two steps without, like, knocking into another human being. People are sleeping, like, huddled over. Like, it's, it's, it's a mess. And Fidel realizes, as, as this, like, keeps going and going, the crisis is going and going. And remember, Peruvian embassy, the Peruvian embassy is Peruvian territory. If Fidel, without Peruvian government's permission, had sent troops there, it would have been an act of war. So he can't do that. And there's also a lot of international conventions. That's almost just about sacred ground. So Fidel can't actually send in like guards without the Peruvian government's permission. So Fidel does something else. He says, okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna let anyone who wants to leave go. Uh, he start, and this is actually, this is, uh, he basically says, if you wanna go to Mariel and have people pick you up, go for it, I won't stop you. And so you have the Mariel boat lift, which is how it sounds. People were sending boats in like a caravan across the sea between Florida and Mariel, the west of Havana, picking up thousands and thousands and thousands of Cubans and just kept going day and night, day and night. Um, and uh, those who left were uh, often uh, uh, like they, they were they were abused. They would have eggs thrown at their houses for having trying to leave. They would have people like the government would organize, and sometimes I would imagine it would be spontaneous. But there would also be government government instigation to uh, to uh, yell verbal assaults at people, telling them que se vayan, que se vayan, <laughs> let them go, uh, let them all go, calling them gusanos, worms, uh, calling them escoria, trash, uh, and uh, basically telling them to go, we don't need you here, that kind of thing, uh, and that really. Like that, that left a lot of really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, even to this day. Uh, so that, and then eventually, things got normalized, and Fidel shut down the boat lift. Um, and I think in part because of U.S. pressure. Point is, that's the Marian boat lift, and if I recall correctly, that's the, the that's what when, when if you see the movie Scarface, he is a Marianito. Um, and one of the, like, enduring, like, the Scarface, the, the movie with Al Pacino. Not sure if you've seen that. No. But, oh, he, it's, it's a gangster movie. It's a classic of the 1990s, um, where a, a, a Cuban ca a character, uh, the one who uh, is named Scarface, uh, it becomes a major cocaine dealer. Anyway, he, it's, it's a, he's a marionette. Anyway, um, the, that's separate from the Balsero crisis. In the 1990s, Basically, the Soviet Union collapses 
1990-1991. The USSR and the Eastern Bloc of the uh, of Europe uh, was about 60 to 70 percent of Cuba's foreign trade. 60 to 70 percent, and overnight that collapses. And keep in mind, the USSR not had not only been trading with Cuba, but subsidizing them. So that disappears overnight. And the US also proceeds to start ratcheting up further um, you know, the embargo against which already been placed since 19, uh, the 1960s, starts ratcheting up, tightening the screws to try and get Cuba to collapse. So you have Cuba in economic freefall. Uh, people were going blind because of vitamin deficiency. <laughs> this is like a near apocalyptic economic event. Uh, this is like the this is like how probably when in the in the Weimar Republic, uh, like or I think it was the Weimar Republic in Germany, when like the Deutschmarks had no value and people were like bringing wheelbarrows of Deutschmarks to buy a loaf of bread, that kind of like societal collapse, that's what you had in Cuba in the 1990s. And it's known in Cuba as a special period. In the 1990s, you had a second giant release of people where Fidel says, I will stop you if you try to leave, and people created balsas. So, like, balsero crisis, balsas. Basically, anything that could float, they tried to cross the sea. And that is, and then you had thousands and thousands of people leaving from all walks of life. Now, the major difference between in Mariel and 1990s from what came before is Marielitos and the Balseros are often more working class. They had often grown up in the revolution. They are often people of color, not white. They are often not uh, a whiter or more professional class. This is a lot of working class people too. And so the composition of Cuban immigration really starts to change in the 80s and 90s. And part of the discrimination that more recent immigrants would get from the older exilio historico would in part be because they are brown, poor, and seen to have been more, uh, have lived under communism and be, be somehow infected by that, as opposed to the exilio historico, which is also often very elitist, very white, very racist, very conservative in its politics. Uh, so, and, and more recent emigrants uh, from Cuba also like may, they may not like Fidel, but they want healthcare. They want good schools for them as working class people. Like they often, some people in the U.S. and made a lot of money, but a lot didn't. And so they kind of just they want some kind of social safety net because that's also what they're used to. And so you have like a very like a the, the historic the there's a there's this long running issues internally with, within the Cuban American immigrant community between those two groups even today. Um, and yeah, so that's that's more or less sets the scene. My family left in the nineteen in nineteen sixty one, I believe. Uh, this year. Uh, it was part of that whiter professional class emigrant. We weren't oligarchs, we didn't have like lions and stuff. We had our the house, but they were both uh, university graduates in a country where that was not in time like not everyone graduated from college back then, especially in Cuba. Uh, where illiteracy was still about 30% of the population, and where like having a house was a huge luxury in the capital, while a lot of people, especially in the eastern part of the country, uh, eastern parts of the country, were still going around barefoot, so uh, and getting worms in their feet because of that. So it's 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 a complex situation, but it like the the socioeconomic and race racial aspects of it uh, are are not often underlined. So, uh, I, I think I, I have 
yeah, I, I have confused the 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 the, the, the terms. Uh, I I think that now that I think about it, what what you first mentioned, the the crisis that had to do with Peru, I, I have heard about it, but very long time ago. But no, I I think in the nineties also it happened that that, that was uh, a Cuban kid who who was uh, a point of discord between the. The, the U.S. and Cuba because he he arrived in, in into Cuba but but his family was in the he arrived to the U.S. but his family was in in Cuba I don't yeah uh, Elian Gonzalez yes 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 yeah yeah um, actually I met him <laughs> it's a risk he, he he had cake in my backyard <laughs> uh, yeah no Elian so Elian was really like my like um, I think he, I think 1999 to 2000 was the exact year. Um, I can't remember when I first hear, heard about it. My father was the um, legal mind behind Cuba's argument, legal arguments to get the kid back. Um, so basically, Elian and his, Elian's parents had split up when he was very young. Elian's dad worked in the tourism industry. He was actually pretty relatively protected from all of the really hard stuff that was happening at the, at the economy in the 90s. Uh, and the mother had a boyfriend. And the boyfriend uh, decides to leave Cuba. Um, when the boyfriend decides to leave Cuba, he tells us, uh, and definitively, as an emigre, uh, in, in a balser, he decides to tell his, his girlfriend, Elian's mother, to come with him. She decides she's not going to leave Elian in Cuba. So she kidnaps Elian without telling her, her, her ex-husband, Elian's father. She kidnaps Elian and puts him on the balsero and they're crossing the sea. Now it's not entirely clear what happened on that balsa, but what's clear is everyone else died. Uh, Elian was found floating on a, a tire, if I recall correctly, or some other piece of driftwood or wreckage from the, from the ship which fell apart. Um, he was found floating uh, by, I believe, some fishermen uh, in, in 1999 off the sea, and he was brought in, he was given uh, protection. Um, now, the big, the big legal issue with Elian was his extended family, he did have extended family in Miami, but his father was still in Cuba. His mother is now dead. His father was in Cuba, and his father said, no, no, I want Elian here with me in Cuba. I'm his father. I have a right to tell him to have my son with me. Uh, his mother kidnapped him, but his mother is also no longer with us. Therefore, I now have custody under basically every every statute of the law says I have a like he as the father has a better right to claim over Elian than these distant great uncles and third cousins whatever in Miami. Um, and so you have this huge issue because legally speaking, the dad is a hundred percent right, but it's a political issue because Elian is turned into the symbol. Uh, by his extended family and by the Miami Cuban American community. Um, eventually, Janet Reno, who was then, oh, forgot her exact post, but anyway, she was working in the, in the Clinton administration, and she authorizes, I think she was Attorney General, if I recall correctly, she authorizes um, the SWAT to go in and rescue Elian. It was a rescue operation. They removed him from the home because if the court had ordered the family, the extended family, to return Elian to his father. The family refused to do the swap was sent in. They rescued him as a rescue operation because it, it was a kidnapping. They did not have legal custody over Elian. 
and he was sent back to Cuba where he enlisted to stay. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's some things I, I, I some of the 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 stuff I, I remember, but some other I, I haven't heard that because it was it is it was a very curious issue. I remember the Spanish version of CNN used to talk a lot about this issue when I was it was very little, but, but I remember they talked a lot. They basically, all day was. Um, in, between 99 and 2000 that was um, a lot of of the talking about the US human relationships but but i think in, in in more recent years there there has been a lot of talk about um about uh, it's it's quite complex i i think the relationship between the american left and, and cuba because it it's 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 very diverse, I, I, and, and I will, in, in, for this time, include the more broadly the, the term to include liberals because I, I think it's it's quite complicated the, the relationship that there is b between, and I think the the Barack Obama go government represents in some way the, the the kind of complexity because I think he show a, a willing to to openness but at the same time by him closing the the wet food program he he started to to insert issues that are dealing now that i, I mean if i'm not wrong uh, now cuban refugee seekers are detained and 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 put in prison i think because they i, I think technically cannot be uh, sent back to Cuba, if I'm not recall wrong? Yeah, so basically, what for dry food, for listeners who aren't aware of it, what for dry food basically allowed any Cuban who set foot on dry American soil to uh, to basically ask for status in the U.S. and they would be given a uh, special uh, parole, and they'd be given a work permit, and then they would give it, be given a path to residency, and then from there, a path to citizenship. Uh, so it was a very, it was a very, pretty good deal. Um, and then, uh, as part of normalization with Cuba, uh, including the restoration of the U.S. Embassy in Cuba and a series of other measures, Obama ended wet foot dry foot. Uh, I imagine as it was a condition of, I wasn't like in the meetings, but I imagine that that was a condition of normalization because uh, what, what one of the things that wet foot dry foot did was any Cuban who had an engineering degree, a doctor degree, like a medical degree, any kind of advanced degree, and thought, hey, I have no debt. I, I'm, I, 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 could do, I could make it in the US. I could totally do it in the US. And this is like a quick path to citizenship. They would risk it all to cross the sea and enter the US however they could, and then use what for drive. But so it was really sucking up Cuban professionals, and the Cuban government really didn't like that. Uh, it was also uh, in encouraging people to risk it all and try and emigrate uh, by creating illegal like uh, like um, rafts and things like that and trying to cross uh, the, the Florida Strait and many of them drowned in the process. Uh, and the Cuba's point was, well, like if you want to like allow Cubans to come to the U.S., you could just give them visas, they, so they wouldn't have to risk drowning in the middle of the ocean. Uh, but anyway. So Obama ends with the dry foot, and yeah, under Trump, what's happening is a lot of immigrants, who are, including Cubans, are being detained sometimes for extremely long periods of time, months and months and months, 
in facilities along the U.S. Cuba, uh, U.S. Mexico border, uh, many times in very poor conditions. Uh, right now, I mean, if, if you see, if, if your listeners um, see the videos and like look at, look at some of the articles about it, these are like not only unhealthy; these are unhealthy conditions where people are being concentrated in very minimal, with very minimal uh, medical care. That can very quickly lead to deaths, as many people have been dying recently. Um, due to the poor conditions, because with poor nutrition, uh, very little um, sanitary, poor sanitary conditions, and a lot of people in a very cramped amount of space, someone gets sick, and that's just going to radiate. It's, it's an incubator for, for horrible virulent diseases. Uh, so that's been happening lately. The, the Cuban-American Congress people, like Rubio, Marco Rubio from Florida, and Ted Cruz um, um, from Texas, have been largely silent probably because they're Republicans and they don't want to anger Trump. And I also think they don't really that care that much about Cubans, uh, but that's my two cents. But the fact is they've been very pretty silent on this issue. Uh, and a lot of Cubans are suffering and have been, have been complaining um, about this. Um, there's, uh, the, I mean, there is also the issue of legal limbo for those who, who do manage to get into the U.S. from one way or the other. Which is, uh, for example, if for whatever reason an, a Cuban has never found a way to normalize his status, or he, ha he or she had residency, but that was taken away because of, for example, or multiple arrests, because good moral character is a condition of residency. So let's say they were arrested for several cases of credit card fraud, or, or rape, or assault, or some other issue, or a lot of drinking and driving charges. Their residency can be revoked, but now they're in a limbo because the U.S. government uh, can't really deport them to Cuba without Cuba agreeing, and in many cases Cuba says no. And so what happens is uh, the U.S. government will sometimes try to detain them indefinitely. Uh, like, keep in mind, this is separate from any prison for criminal charges. This is the which the U.S. will just try to detain them until Cuba is ready to take them, but Cuba says no, so now they just wait months and months and months and months and maybe years in U.S. detention facilities and sometimes have to sue the U.S. government in order to get the U.S. government to let them go. That's so there are questions that I was going to ask you is about the, 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 the presence of uh, that, that have been portrayed in the Cuba in the, in the Latin American media and the, the American media also about the, the presence of anarchists and, and it, it seems that, that Sometimes a, 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 a far less informed view about radical politics uh, make people think that the narc is basically the same of a, of a communist or of a socialist, and that if technically one will live in a in a in a communist country, then why do anarchists will will complain? But it seems uh, I am not an expert in the subject, but it seems that there is uh, in Cuba uh, an anarchist community, and, and 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 it's very curious, and, and and I guess that's why it has received more attention than the other anarchist movements, I guess, in, in Latin America, because at at the same time it, it's it's a reaction against the Cuban government, but not in the more traditional way that we see in the more kind of uh, conservative leaning. Uh, uh, from uh, the the Cuban American community. Uh, well, I mean, I've, I in my years in Cuba, I have I mean, I've yet to meet a Cuban anarchist. I'm not saying I wouldn't be surprised if there were those because, like, uh, 
especially like in the 19th century, the, some of the major hubs for anarchism were, uh, in, in Europe at least, were Italy, uh, Spain, uh, and, and in parts of uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, in, in Spain, like anarchists played a role even into the well into the, the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. Uh, until they were brutally, brutally murdered and suppressed by Franco. Uh, but, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Cuba had its own tradition of anarchism, even though it's not, I, I, I am not familiar with that scholarship. I'm not, I, I have yet to meet one. I have seen a couple of, li like, like uh, more like ANCAP libertarians <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On, 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 like, Facebook like, groups, but that's, I would... I, I think that's different. ANCAP is different from like socialist libertarian. I, yeah, like like anarchist anarchist. I think yeah. They're two slightly different traditions. Uh, but I mean, I also would understand the resurgence of that if it does happen in terms of like the Cuban like the, the Cuban government's running of the economy uh, for a lot of reasons we probably don't have time to get into has uh, been kind of like a mess. Uh, Fidel would just wake up one day and say, this is what we're going to do. And the entire economy of the country had to move towards that one to Google, even if it made no sense at all. Uh, everyone had to do it because el comandante dijo que sí, hay que cumplir. We have to do what the comandante says. Uh, and so you would have things like the, the, the disastrous cafeta, uh, 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 basically the cordón de la Habana. They they so they planted coffee all around Havana, uh, and the idea was that that Cuba would become a huge coffee producer. Uh, problem was that they planted it in areas where it was actually not going to grow because they, the type of coffee they planted in Cuba prefers mountains, and they planted it in a plane, and everyone tried to tell Fidel that it wouldn't work, and this is crazy, and he just said do it anyway, and it was disastrous. So like and, and then Cuba's his, Cuban history after 1959 has a lot of like really crazy Fidel plans that just don't pan out and consume a lot of time and resources. Uh, so I could totally I could totally understand the instinctual reaction to say government inter intervention in the economy is a mess and a bad idea. Like I I can understand where that uh, where that comes from and where that instinctual reaction would be. Like if your only experience of state intervention in the economy is Cuba after 1959 I totally get it like I, I, I so we could end up talking about the the um, the economic reforms that, that, that there has been a lot of talk about it how how will these economic reforms uh, have any impact in, in, in the in the in the lives of the Cuban people and in, in the future of its relationships with with the U.S. So I, I think that uh, basically the the economic reforms have really I, basically the, the the almost decade long period that Raúl was in power has completely changed a lot. It's changed the political life of the island. It has also seen the growth of information exchanges, which have now often been at least semi-legalized, like the sharing, uh, like people would sell uh, media uh, legally uh, between, uh, or at least in a gray area, uh, between themselves so you could like pass in the paquete, they would pass movies, films, TV, also access to news, the information of the, the um, what's it called, the, the state monopoly on political uh, media 
has base is dead and it's never going to come back. Uh, the economic reforms have, uh, have progressed, and so you now have, I think, about a third of the uh, a third of labor is involved in the private sector now, thereabouts, which is a huge change from like just a decade ago. Um, so you have a lot of economic transformations. Um, it's nowhere near as I mean, there's. It, I, the, the, they're basically they've been trying to imitate the Chinese and Vietnamese economic models, and with varying degrees of success. There's two key differences uh, from those models that I can see. One is uh, agricultural reforms in the countryside have been nowhere near as major as they were in Vietnam and China. Like the, the length of the lease, the liberalization of controls of production for market consumption in terms of agricultural goods. We haven't seen the same degree of opening up in uh, Cuba's uh, agri- uh, labor, uh, rural, uh, like uh, agricultural labor production, um, agricultural uh, economic reforms, as we've seen in Vietnam and China. That's on the one hand. Another major difference, which is more of a structural thing that they don't really have a lot of control over at this point, is that Cuba has urbanized to a degree that neither Vietnam nor China was. When they began those reforms, uh, Cuba does not have a large, massive, burgeoning rural labor market that they can easily tap into in the same way that China did or Vietnam did. Cuba has urbanized extremely, so there's actually a shortage of labor, really, in the countryside. So, and given the, the centrality of rural economic reforms to the economic miracles of China and Vietnam, it's not really clear how viable those models are in Cuba, and that's something that's not just a matter of policy. That's just a matter of the populations are in the cities now. Uh, many young people in the countryside are just emigrating either to the cities or from the country entirely. Uh, where are you going to get your labor force? Uh, your labor force willing to do lots of labor for not necessarily great pay. Uh, that's a huge problem facing the country in terms of economic reforms. Plus, you have all the shortages in terms of electricity, especially with the oil shortages, because the U.S. is trying to throttle Cuba's access to oil. Uh, and on top of that, you have other periodic shortages, um, given uh, like pro- in terms of products. Uh, and since the state maintains its monopoly on imports, uh, it's very difficult sometimes to get products. So you have to sometimes go abroad to get uh, anything from cheese, especially folks which good cheeses that you want to use in a restaurant. So you have to fly outside of the country and bring it on you if you want to actually bring it into Cuba or some other similarly crazy scheme. Uh, so there's a, still a lot of major uh, hurdles to, to get through, but a lot of it, it, the, the change in the last decade has just been enormous. It's difficult to really express it uh, if you just weren't there to see it. I was there to see it, and it's, it, and it's just night and day. Um, and of course, the economic reforms also have political implications because uh, before 2008, almost everybody either worked in the state sector or if you were in the private sector, you were working in the black market. Because you're working in the black market, if you decided to use your money for political purposes, the government didn't have to think twice about throttling you economically. They could just put you in jail for or, or fine you or do something else because of your illegal economic activity. Now. Uh, since uh, as more and more of the private sector gets its firmer feet, uh, footing, 
uh, gets more protections, uh, is more economically independent, you start seeing fortunes invested, and it's, it's developing in a way that, in theory, in the, in the mid to long term, that is, I think, where the Cuban government is going to is sees its like long-term threat in terms of politics. A lot of people have said, like, it's just today, a foreign policy board put out an article about how uh, Cuba's the Cuban government, for ideological reasons, keeps pulling back on the economic works. I think that that's backwards. They don't. I don't think they really care that much about the ideological implications of people getting wealthy. I don't think they give too much two shits, especially the the higher ups. I think. The real issue, the core issue, is that they see that economic independence as a possible base for political issues down the road. Because if those guys start financing political campaigns uh, or candidates in in different races, they start electing themselves and like giving people free stuff as a part of their election campaign, and they can afford it. That has massive political implications, and the Cuban political system, which is still dominated. Legally speaking, you can't have a second party. By one party, it is not built to deal with that. Up till now, no other thing has been viable. Now it is becoming viable, and I don't think the Cuban government really knows what the fuck it's going to do, especially since it's lost its media monopoly, and its media hasn't evolved to deal with a more complex political situation. Uh, they're trying to evolve, like they've gotten onto Twitter, T.S. is on Twitter, sometimes the ministers will respond to people, uh, you also have a lot of fake accounts that are government supporters. Like people will point out the photo is actually from an Argentine dating site, <laughs> or this girl is actually Chinese and it's a Chinese model that they put on there. Uh, a lot of them are like, so they're trying to also do kind of like not catfishing, but kind of like false media profiles to push up their to 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 just retweet their their politicians and stuff like that. It's all very they're they're, they're, they're learning. It's very clumsy. It's very incipient. It's very it's very obvious right now. As time goes on, they're probably going to get better at it. But they're trying to learn, and I think that that the fact that they're do, putting this much effort into it isn't some kind of Machiavellian like oh now they're 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 they're, they're trying to co opt the system. No, it's they feel they have no other choice. They are doing this because their media monopoly is dead and is never going to return. And so they are trying their utmost to at least halfway have a halfway decent uh, media messaging thing, and like their presence on Twitter and their their limited reforms to state media are are part of that. So I think that in the in the mid to long term, you're going to see a lot. Of, you're going to see a lot of changes, and I think that the, the, the one of the big things with the Trump administration's policies towards Cuba has been. That the Trump administration's policies have been about domestic political gains, making sure Marco Rubio is happy. That is, in fact, what Mar- what Trump has was quoted as saying, I believe, in a Washington Post article: "Keep Marco happy." This is about keeping Marco Rubio happy and keeping the Cuban American electorate in Florida happy. Uh, but it's not even a smart, pragmatic Machiavellian policy because. Obama's policy was much more dangerous to the Cuban government because the Cuban government supporters have a lot of different ideas for where the country should go, especially with, with Fidel dead, uh, it's a new leader, all the rest. There's a lot of different ideas for where they should go in economic reforms, in cultural reforms, in all different aspects, including political reforms. And what keeps them together is the idea that the U.S. should not be intervening in Cuba. But if 
if they do, if Obama's policies was dangerous because he pulled back, he let the Cuban government push an open door, and so now if they dismantle the embargo and have normalization policies with Cuba and are trying to strong arm Cuba, they do a soft power policy, that is infinitely more dangerous to the Cuban government because then the entire justification for a lot of the, their policies uh, just disappears overnight. Um, so what we've seen is a reversal on, under the Trump administration, which actually stymies the effectiveness of Obama's reforms after 2014. That's my take, at least. Yeah, that that's really a, a, an interesting uh, take to to end this conversation. I think it's it has been a really interesting conversation. It's it's a really interesting topic. I think. Uh, and the the it's it's a very broad topic the relationship about U.S. Latin American relations, but the particular topic about uh, U.S. Cuban relations are, are are it's a very important part, and and we don't always um, think about it, but but it's a really interesting and and very relevant and current topic. Um, uh, so thank you, Andres. So how do people can can find yourself uh, online? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter uh, as my my app is at as Peritera. Um, so that's a s p as in Peter e r t as in Tom i e r r a uh, as Peritera Andres Peritera on Twitter. So yeah. Yeah. So. So thank you for 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 being here. It's it's been really great talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Okay. <laughs> Bye. That was a really great episode. Uh, Andres Portillo is really a, a great young historian. I'm sure we will hear more from him in the future. Uh, and well, the topic of U.S. Latin American relations is very interesting. Uh, I hope that we will um, develop more this topic in, in future episodes. Uh, so this is the 26th episode, and it's been a while. Uh, uh, I, I will be uh, recording more episodes soon. I will try to record more frequently. Um, the podcast is available on Spreaker, on iTunes, and Spotify. Uh, in order to know where my next uh, podcasts are coming, you could follow at my personal account on Twitter at CamiloMGN or C-A-M-E-L-O-M-G-N um, They also share my articles because I also work as a freelance writer. My last article was uh, Trumpism Reveals the Danger of Fusionism at the Center for a Settler Society. I will probably also write another article pretty soon. And 
Well, with that, I just going to leave you with some underground music. This is Los Sapping with our winnings, smiles, and us. Sí. 